The following episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. This special episode comes to you from an instructional course presented at AUA 2023. For more information, including how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org university. Independent educational grant support is provided by Estellas, AstraZeneca, Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Lanthius Medical Imaging, Merck & Co., Inc., and Pfizer, Inc. All right, I think we're going to go ahead and get started. So I'd like to welcome everybody. Uh, I am... Uh, Costas Lawless, uh, my speakers uh, today from the Greater uh, Jefferson Enterprise are Ann Calvaresi uh, Lizardi, uh, who is uh, presenting the APP program over the weekend, and Ed Trebolsi, who is the new chairman of urology at Einstein. We're going to split this up in three sections, prostate cancer, bladder cancer, and kidney cancer. Uh, prostate cancer will be presented by Anne. Take it away. Good morning. All right, so getting started with prostate cancer. Uh, I'm sure you've all seen this. This is a classic uh, representation of uh, prostate cancer when it's diagnosed in its localized form, treated uh, with surgery or radiation plus or minus androgen deprivation therapy. You may see a recurrence with biochemical, uh, indicated biochemical recurrence, at which point ADT is uh, utilized, and then as you move forward into the castrate-resistant disease state, advanced systemic therapies are used. Um, this is very historic, um, and we're going to see why it's uh, a little bit outdated as we move forward. And so moving on into the traditional hormonal ablation therapy, the GNRH agonists, um, they stimulate the LH and FSH from the pituitary gland to the testis. It's a negative feedback system, um, kind of like your home thermostat on a super hot day uh, when it gets really, really hot, and eventually it just stops working. Uh, this is kind of what happens with the uh, testosterone release um, when patients are on this. They reach cast, patients reach castrate levels at about four to six weeks after uh, initiation of treatment. Most common agents in this drug class are luprolide. Um, you can see a T surge uh, when you give this, so you may need to use an antiandrogen to block that T surge. The GNRH antagonists, they directly inhibit the pituitary LH and FSH release, so there's no surge in the androgens. Um, the most common uh, agents here are dagorelics, um, which requires a monthly administration, so it's a little uh, bit less convenient for patients and providers. And we have the new oral GNRH antagonist called relugalix, um, which gives some patients a little bit of autonomy. They're not getting injected. Um, they feel like they have a little bit more control. Um, and we're going to see another benefit here. Um, so you can see um, you get basically the same level of castration, but a quicker return to uh, or a quicker return of testosterone to normal levels when they stop the medication compared to an injection. Additionally, um, there are fewer cardiovascular side effects for patients who are on the oral therapy versus um, a, like a Degarelix. 
the traditional hormonal therapy uh, includes the non-steroidal antiandrogens. Um, they block binding of the androgen to the androgen receptor. Uh, most common drug class here is bicalutamide. It's important to monitor LFTs in patients who are receiving this medication. Um, so I usually order them about a month after they start medication, and then obviously, you know, periodically throughout. We don't commonly see orchiectomies any longer, at least not in the States. Um, here, you know, you can see where these medications uh, uh, mechanism of action uh, occur. Um, duration of hormonal therapy really varies. So in patients who are uh, diagnosed with intermediate risk prostate cancer and they're going to be receiving concurrent radiation therapy, they usually are um, given six months of androgen deprivation therapy. Sometimes we'll see, you know, four to six months. In patients who are diagnosed with high-risk prostate cancer and who are going to be undergoing radiation therapy, they're usually uh, prescribed two to three years of ADT. Um, and then in patients who have biochemical or metastatic disease, uh, they may go on intermittent or uh, continuous therapy. This slide is probably my favorite slide of, uh, of the deck, but also every time I place patients on ADT, I think about this while I'm talking about uh, this potential side effects that they're going to experience. Um, sometimes I'll even draw it on the whiteboard in the exam room. Um, so ADT in the middle, um, and they'll say, you're probably going to experience all of these side effects, um, at least to some degree. So um, hot flashes, altered body composition, um, cardiovascular changes, um, uh, decreased bone density, uh, metabolic syndrome, fatigue, um, and loss of libido, erectile dysfunction, and then cognitive decline, which I always, I usually tell them is usually for patients who are on it for a longer duration. So um, metabolic changes, weight change, uh, gynecomastia. Um, I always tell patients that the best way that they can possibly mitigate this or, or you know, decrease it to the, to the greatest extent possible is healthy diet and exercise. And I'm going to kind of hit on this uh, on the next following slides. Um, that helps with their sleep pattern as well. Um, so for cognitive decline, um, specifically verbal memory, uh, visual motor function, attention, and executive function, so a lot of patients will note that their attention is altered or, or decreased. Um, so we want to encourage um, physical activity for this, um, but also mindfulness-based stress relief um, and mental stimulation. So and especially in your elderly patients, say, get out of the chair, stop watching television, maybe some um, crossword puzzles or at least reading, getting out of the house getting some type of other stimulation. Um, the altered body composition, metabolic syndrome, and fatigue. The, these patients should be clo followed closely by their PCP and, and their cardiologist if they have one. Um, you know, close followed, uh, closely followed serum labs, including their cholesterol panel, glucose, A1C. Again, strongly recommending daily exercise. And that includes cardiovascular exercise, but also some strength training. Um, so I always tell patients, I don't expect you to go out and run a triathlon or a marathon, um, but even if they're used to sitting in their chair in the house, pick up a set of one-pound dumbbells and use them for five minutes a couple of times a day and say, you know, Anne, I can't walk a block. That's okay. Get up and walk around your living room a couple of laps as opposed to just doing nothing. Um, again, healthy, well-balanced diet. Um, if they're really unsure, you can send them to a dietitian. Um, I always tell them to stay away from those center aisles in the supermarket. Shop on the perimeter because that's where you find all of the healthier, um, you know, more, um, you know, the fresher, fresher uh, products. Um, routine sleep cycle, that's also very helpful. So going to bed at the same time, waking up at the same time, staying away from stimulants or screen time right before bedtime is very helpful. 
Also, we think about these patients, a lot of times they're getting up to, to pee um, very often through the night. Have them cut back on their fluids three hours before bedtime. Um, you, know, you know, we want to manage their, their BPH symptoms if they're present as well. Smoking cessation, of course, is very important. Um, if they don't have a cardiologist, they would probably benefit by seeing one or at least being followed by one. We're looking here at, again, at, at uh, a healthy diet. Um, and the AHA and the American Cancer Society both have very loose dietary guidelines that you can refer them to. Um, there's an increased likelihood for emotional ability and depressed mood. Um, so you can consider antidepressants, individual counseling, couples counseling, um, support groups if they're available. Um, and consider treatment of the ED. A lot of times these, these um, mood changes are really dependent upon the fact that they're not able to perform for their significant other. So if you can treat the ED, that's really going to help them uh, in, the, in the long term. Unfortunately, we don't have any FDA-approved treatments for the hot flashes, but uh, considerations here are acupuncture, vitamin B supplementation, which uh, shows anecdotally, and it also shows in women uh, you know, going through menopause that there's a huge improvement in their hot flashes. Um, and then you know, we, we can use um, magestral acetate, um, also some SSRIs. But what I always tell patients is that if we're going to use those, most of them do have their own set of side effects associated with them. We worry about bone health, so this is like male menopause. When women go through menopause, we see osteoporosis or osteopenia, so we want to optimize their bone health and you know, decrease um, the changes in their bone density as much as we possibly can. So at the very least, patients should be on vitamin D supplementation and calcium. Um, there should be a baseline DEXA scan, especially for patients who are going to be going on at least a two-year uh, course of ADT, um, and then periodically throughout the treatment, they should be getting uh, repeat DEXA scans. Um, you're going to consider an anti-resorptive agent in patients who are higher risk, so you think about their elderly, the frail, smokers, or um, alcohol abusers. Anti-resorptive agents are very strong. Um, you worry about osteonecrosis of the jaw for patients who are placed on these medications. So you want to make sure that they have a thorough dental evaluation before they're placed on these medications. Um, uh, they are uh, approved for preventing and treating osteoporosis for patients who are on ADT. Uh, the bisphosphonate therapies, that's a zoledronic acid. It's um, given IV. Um, this inhibits the bone osteoclast, so that you're inhibiting the bone breakdown. Um, you, you need to worry about patients who have decreased renal function, um, so they need very close, careful follow-up with their creatinine. So you're, again, working very closely with their primary care physicians when patients are on these medications. Denosumab, uh, it, it promotes osteoclast and bone reabsorption, minimizes skeletal-related events, and development of bone mets. Um, so the dosage for bone mets is 120 milligrams subcutaneous, um, and for osteoporosis, it's 60 milligrams subcutaneous uh, every si uh, six months. So you can see here, compared to that very first slide that I showed, all of the potential agents that we can use for patients with uh, prostate cancer. And this changed dramatically even just compared to three years ago or five years ago. Um, and some of these trials, so, so we've, we've given this talk for several years now, and some of these trials I really went into deep detail with previously, but now we have so many that uh, we would be here all day if we did that. So um, the, some of the more recent ones, we're looking at uh, Titan, so that's apalutamide for patients with metastatic castrate-sensitive prostate cancer. This looked at over 1,000 men uh, with metastatic disease, and they were randomized to ADT plus apalutamide or ADT plus uh, placebo. 
looking at uh, co-primary endpoints of overall survival and radiographic progression-free survival, and you can see that there was a huge improvement in patients who were on uh, ADT plus apalutamide, and that's depicted here. Um, so just in uh, 2022, um, this looked at abiraterone plus prednisone added to androgen deprivation therapy and docetaxel in de novo metastatic castrate-sensitive prostate cancer patients. So this was looking at one-to-one-to-one-to-one. To one to one to one. Um, and so obviously we haven't seen patients who have, have been given these num you know, this, this great number of treatments all uh, starting at the same time. Um, and the co-primate endpoints were overall survival and radiographic progression-free survival. And you can see the large improvement in patients um, who were on treatment. And again, so historically, so in 2015, we had docetaxel with the charted and stampede trial. Um, and then in 2017, we had abiraterone and 2019, enzalutamide. And now we're looking at this triplet therapy, which we just saw in the prior trial that we discussed briefly. Um, here we're looking at darolutamide and survival in metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer patients. Uh, so this looked at uh, about uh, 1,300 patients looking at docetaxel with ADT plus darolutamide versus docetaxel plus ADT and a placebo. Um, and it showed that patients uh, who were on the darolutamide had a 32.5% reduced risk of death. And so again, this is how the, um, that very first slide has changed to this point. So we have all these agents available to us. I always tell patients we have an arsenal of things available to you, even in patients who are diagnosed with metastatic disease. So for uh, non-metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer patients, so these are patients who have a rising PSA, um, a castrate level of testosterone, and negative conventional imaging. So usually CT, abdomen, and pelvis, and a bone scan. So some of these newer um, imaging studies that we're going to talk about briefly later, um, that, that's not conventional imaging. Some of, those are some of the newer imaging studies. Um, so NCCN guidelines for these, uh, for these patients uh, include close observation, um, plus ADT, so there's category one evidence supporting apalutamide, enzalutamide, or darolutamide in addition to ADT. So that's actually recommended above ADT alone. Um, and then you can consider second or third line hormonal manipulation. Um, so based on the results from Spartan and uh, Prosper, uh, Spartan and Prosper both uh, demonstrated uh, metastasis-free survival in men who were on treatment. Um, and both, this was the first time that this was studied uh, for this endpoint. Apalutamide then was approved for uh, uh, non-metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. This is a non-steroidal anti-androgen. Um, you have to worry about um, hypothyroidism, skin rash, and fracture in this patient population. So hypothyroidism, you're just gonna you're gonna watch their thyroid levels. Um, the skin rash is usually very well managed with topical corticosteroids and maybe an antihistamine. Um, very few patients, um, you know, you can dose reduce, but after dose reduction um, and topical corticosteroids or uh, oral um, antihistamines, I've had one patient who I've had to take off of treatment, and that was when he developed like an open weeping rash on the palms of his hands. Fracture. Of course these patients are going to have fractures, right? You're talking about older men who are less ambulatory, they're falling. Um, so you want to optimize, um, number one, their posture and their mobility. So you're having fewer, fewer falls and you're having more fractures because you see decreased bone density. So again, physical exercise and improving their overall strength. Um, so darolutamide, um, there's a little bit less crossover of the blood-brain barrier, so we believe that it's better tolerated. 
Um, Aramis looked at this um, and showed improvement in metastasis-free survival and overall survival, and that's depicted here. So 2023 NCSN guidelines for metastatic castrate-resistant uh, prostate cancer. So you, you want to maintain that castrate level, so you're keeping them on androgen deprivation therapy. Considering the bone anti-absorptive agents, either denosumab or zoledronic acid, um, for the patients who are asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic, you can consider uh, simple useless LT and then palliative radiation therapy for painful bony metastases. This is a really busy slide. I put it up here only because I think that it's so important for all of us as providers to have an NCCN login. And I've spoken to a lot of nurses and APPs who don't even know that it exists, unfortunately. Um, but you know, I always tell them it's free. You can go on there, and it's basically like the the Bible or whatever religious book you use. It tells you every single step of the way what to use and when to use it. Um, so this is great. Um, it's always available to you when you're seeing a patient, and you know I have it. I have it on the desktop, and I reference it very frequently. Cipulusal cell T is immunotherapy for prostate cancer. Um, it's approved for non-visceral asymptomatic patients. Um, it's uh, uh, it's, uh, it works by uh, harvesting the T cells through leukophoresis. Um, uh, it's cultured and stimulated, and then it's reinfused uh, three days later. It's given as three cycles, two weeks apart. Um, the unfortunate thing is that it doesn't really decrease the PSA. So we talk about PSA anxiety. So patients get PSA anxiety before they go to the lab, the night before they come in to see you, and then while they're sitting in the exam room. So if they're on treatment and they're not seeing a PSA response, of course, it's not super, super helpful. The um, largest improvement was in patients who had the lowest PSA quartile, um, showed improved overall survival benefit compared to patients uh, with a higher PSA. And so here you can see all of the uh, approvals for metastatic castrate-resistant disease as of this year, um, and again, compared to five years ago or three years ago, um, we have many, many more options available to us. For patients with metastatic castrate-resistant disease, the first uh, treatment was approved in 2004. This was um, docetaxel, and historically, we didn't think that chemotherapy worked very well against prostate cancer. Um, and then we had the AR-targeted therapies, which were approved um, just not that long ago, so abiraterone and enzalutamide. Uh, they were first approved post-chemo and then pre-chemo, which is really a space that we see them used often now. Abiraterone was also approved for metastatic castrate-resistant disease with or without visceral METs pre- and post-chemo. Um, it's an androgen biosynthesis inhibitor. Um, it's given 1,000 milligrams a day. Um, the unfortunate thing is it has to be given with prednisone. Um, you do worry about drug-to-drug uh, drug -drug interactions. Um, we actually have a really wonderful... Um, Specialty pharmacy who will look at their drugs, um, and even if I think they're safe, they'll say, "Oh, I am, I, you know, they're on X, Y, and Z." You, at the very least, you need to talk to their primary care doctor or their cardio, um, cardiologist, and at the very least, you need to think about spacing them apart, so giving them uh, eight hours apart. Um, again, patients need to be followed closely, so LFTs, electrolytes, cardiovascular health. Consider um, dose reductions in patients who have uh, liver disease. Um, however, in severe liver um, disease, uh, it is contraindicated. This is the follow-up schedule uh, for patients who are on abiraterone. Um, so nursing staff and um, APPs uh, are in a you know, vital role to be able to call, follow these uh, patients more closely. 
Enzalutamide was approved for metastatic castrate resistant disease with or without visceral mets pre and post chemo. Um, it competitively binds the androgens um, and prevents translocation of the androgen receptor into the nucleus. Uh, this is given as 160 milligrams. I think we're good. Um, and uh, it's contraindicated in patients with severe hepatic impairment. You do um, want to use this with caution, so if patients have a history of seizures, you want to probably not use it. Um, this also has drug-to-drug -drug interactions, so either look at their drug list very closely, or if you have a specialty pharmacy, perhaps they could be very helpful to you. Also, you can consider reaching out to your pharmacist. Um, we know that in patients who have pre-existing cardiovascular disease, we see an increase in cardiovascular events in patients who are placed on abiraterone and ansalutamide. So these are the, um, I'm not going to go into great detail on this slide, but you can see all of the, um, the ways that we can use these medications in, in the disease states, and the dosages are here as well. So I see a couple of people taking pictures. I think this is helpful, you know, as you see patients in, this, uh, in the clinic um, with these diagnoses. Um, so chemotherapy, um, as I mentioned earlier, it was thought for a long time that it was not very effective against prostate cancer. Um, docetaxel was uh, first approved, um, and it's for, it was uh, indicated for patients with metastatic castrate-resistant disease who are failing other therapies. Cabazitaxel is another uh, uh, taxane chemo compound. It's it was approved in 2010 for metastatic castrate-resistant disease who had failed docetaxel, so this was second-line therapy. The radioisotopes naturally target new bone growth in and around the metastases. Um, most common uh, drug here is radium-223. I'm sure you've all heard of that. Um, and radium-223 demonstrated both symptomatic improvement and survival benefit in patients with uh, castrate-resistant disease. Uh, it was given for a period of six months. So uh, second-line treatments for metastatic castrate-resistant disease include docetaxel, enzalutamide, abiraterone with prednisone, um, alternative chemotherapy, pembrolizumab, olaparib, and clinical trials, which kind of leads us into um, you know, newer directions. So we think about combination therapy, we think about sequencing, um, correct sequencing, uh, gene expression testing, um, and then the other agents which we have listed here, including the PARP inhibitors. So gene expression testing, um, each of the following can be used for prognostic purposes. So Decipher looks at um, metast uh, is an endpoint train for looking for metastasis. Prolaris uh, is the endpoint train for time to biochemical recurrence and time to death from prostate cancer. And then Oncotype looks at endpoint train for adverse um, pathology. And this is basically the same thing, but with a little bit more detail. And so what we're trying to weed out is are these patients going to progress or are they not? And you know, for the longest time, we didn't have additional testing that would help to determine that. Um, but these tests are very helpful in weeding out which patients are going to respond to more aggressive therapy versus which patients are okay with you know monotherapy or traditional uh, traditional therapy. And you can see that most of these are covered by the, um, or, or indicated in NCCI, which means that they're usually covered to, to the greatest extent by um, commercial carriers, and they're all approved by Medicaid. Um, and, they're in, and they're approved for most disease states. So while not, not approved for a very low-risk disease, they are approved for low-risk, um, favorable intermediate, favorable, unfavorable intermediate risk, and high-risk disease. 
PSMA PET, this I mentioned earlier. So we talked about conventional imaging, which is CT, abdomen, and pelvis, and a bone scan. Um, so now we have these uh, newer imaging studies, which are very helpful in detecting patients who have, you know, uh, uh, biochemical recurrence or potentially uh, metastatic disease. And so what we're trying to find, um, do they have sites of disease that are not picked up on conventional imaging? Um, so PSMA, it's a molecular target, um, and it's highly expressed in prostate cancer, including metastatic lesions. So it's helpful for us treating patients not with an undetectable PSA, who we don't think we're going to see. Of course, with an undetectable PSA, we're not going to see anything on imaging. Um, but in patients who have um, negative conventional imaging and then um, a rising PSA, we would want to proceed with this. Also, it's not super helpful in patients who've got you know, obvious metastatic disease. So um, why don't CTLA-4 and PD-1 monotherapy work in metastatic castor-resistant disease? Because it's a cold tumor. So we think about hot and cold tumors, the ones that respond better, um, and prostate cancer is not one of them. Um, so novel directions um, in trials not yet approved, so vaccines uh, plus PD-1 combination checkpoint inhibitors, targeted therapy plus PD-1 cytokines and others. And then looking at um, the role of genetic testing in patients um, with prostate cancer. So the uh, Philadelphia Prostate Cancer Consensus Conference was held in 2017 and 2019. So looking back to 2017, the agreement was made um, to test all men who presented with metastatic disease, no matter what age. And we're only just scratching the surface of um, germline mutations in metastatic prostate cancer. So, you know, patients will say, well, do I have that? And I'll say, well, if, if it's the study says no, that doesn't mean you don't. It's just that moving forward, maybe if we test the more information we have, maybe at some point we would identify a mutation. Um, but what we do know um, that uh, BRCA2 is best studied, um, and it's, uh, we see a higher incidence of patients with more aggressive prostate cancer if they do have some of these um, germline mutations. Also, germline mutations are present in a much larger percentage of patients who present with metastatic disease. So the evolving biology of advanced prostate cancer, the take-home points from this consensus was that prostate cancer adapts to the castrate microenvironment, that germline mutations are present in at least uh, um, almost 12% of metastatic disease, and that advanced prostate cancer harbors clinically actionable molecular alterations, um, so genomic testing is indicated. So looking at the consensus then in 2019, um, it was recommended, so priority genes to test for metastatic disease included BRCA2, BRCA1, and mismatch repair genes. BRCA2 was recommended for active surveillance discussions, and screening should be started at an earlier age for patients who had uh, family members who were diagnosed with metastatic disease or more aggressive disease at an earlier age. Um, and so then, uh, this is my final slide, um, so how can we as um, nurse practitioners and physician assistants and also nursing or ancillary staff help with treating these patients? Um, we're going to monitor their labs, we're going to order their scans, administer treatments and manage the toxicities thereof, um, and then refer to oncology when indicated. And that allows more time for our urologists and our surgeons to spend time on patients who um, are going to benefit as well. So I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Ed Trabolsi, and he's going to cover bladder cancer. We're going, to, we're going to hold questions until after all the presentations have been given. Thanks, Annie. Good morning. Thanks for coming out. Uh, my name is Ed Trabolsi. Let me just ask, um, so as Costas mentioned, we've been given this uh, 
course for several years. It started specifically for APPs um, and now has become sort of a general course. Um, how many of you in the audience are providers? So pretty much everyone. And how many are physicians? And how many are NPs? And how many PAs? And am I missing any categories? Any nurses, MAs? No. Okay. So um, it helps us as we try to um, keep the course, you know, sort of current to know who actually is coming to the course. So uh, that helps us a lot. Thank you. So I'm going to tackle a nice small topic, uh, bladder cancer. Um, and then so I'll talk about some of the epidemiology um, and then basically similar to prostate cancer by disease state. So uh, non-muscle invasive disease, uh, muscle invasive disease, metastatic disease. And um, as crazy as it sounds, bladder cancer is kind of an exciting uh, space right now. It's, uh, uh, similar to prostate, there's been a real explosion of different treatment options. Um, I did my residency, oh God, about 25 years ago, and there really wasn't that much to offer these patients, and now we have quite a bit. Um, it's a big burden on the U.S. health system, um, estimated about 80,000 uh, new cases per year, about 17,000 deaths per year. Uh, it's the fourth most common malignancy in men with a much stronger male-to-female predilection, uh, probably due to different smoking rates between men and women, and then also uh, different uh, rates of industrial exposures. Um, and it's kind of an unusual cancer because uh, there's a much higher prevalence than incidence. So there's a lot of people out there living with bladder cancer, fortunately not dying from it. Uh, so that makes it one of the most expensive cancers that we have to deal with. Uh, at presentation, walking in the door, most uh, patients, fortunately, have superficial disease, but there's definitely about 20, 25% that are invasive right off the bat, and then a smaller subset that are metastatic. And it's a disease of the older patients. The average age of diagnosis is uh, about 68. So with all of these different terms, it can get a little bit confusing, um, and so we we try to define what our terminology is. Uh, so we have low risk, high risk, and muscle invasive disease. Uh, so low risk, uh, non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. Um, AUA actually has a nice table uh, helping risk stratify patients. And these are patients with superficial non-invasive uh, tumors that uh, histologically don't look very aggressive. The high risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer patients are the ones that don't show any evidence of invasion of the muscularis propria, but we're very worried that they may progress to that. So that's the high-grade tumors, the larger tumors, the superficially invasive tumors, and then CIS. And then, of course, we have muscle invasive disease. So starting with the superficial non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, um, this is the AUA uh, risk stratification that I was talking about. Um, and this is very helpful uh, Anne mentioned the NCCN guidelines. Um, so I typically will have NCCN guidelines on my desktop when I'm seeing patients. I'll have AUA guidelines uh, selectively as well. And this kind of looks like the New York City or maybe the Chicago subway map. Um, it's a little confusing. But what we're trying to do, you know, we risk strata, oops, wrong button. 
Let's see if this works. So we use low, intermediate, and high risk, and what we're trying to avoid is cystectomy. So we have a lot of different treatments to try to avoid cystectomy. That's sort of the nuclear option. It is something we need to consider, but luckily there's been a, uh, an explosion of treatments to try to mitigate the need for radical surgery. Uh, intravesical therapy is the primary treatment for superficial bladder cancer. Um, we use it perioperatively, so after the initial biopsy or resection, there's strong evidence that giving an intravesical chemo treatment shortly after the biopsy can help reduce the recurrence risk. This is typically mitomycin or genomycin. And then uh, the old line standard of care for the last 50 years uh, for reducing both progression and recurrence of superficial bladder cancer is BCG. So that's the, uh, one of the first forms of immunotherapy. And this is given in our office uh, intravesically. We also have intravesical chemotherapy induction options, not just a single post-op dose. And that's gained more importance with the unfortunate sporadic uh, BCG shortages. But BCG definitely remains the gold standard. Uh, when FDA is looking at uh, new agents, uh, they always want us to compare it to BCG or to have failed BCG, because everyone recognizes uh, at least at, at the current state, it is still the best agent to reduce the risk of uh, recurrence and, mo more importantly, the risk of progression. It's generally tolerated uh, pretty well. Uh, Flu-like symptoms, uh, irritated voiding symptoms, um, but you can get systemic BCG infection very, very rarely. Uh, and it's also because it's an immune therapy, there's also strong rationale to periodically continue to stimulate the immune system. So maintenance therapy also has, has been demonstrated to improve and prolong the responses. How does it work? I'm not sure if anyone really knows. There's a lot of different mechanisms that have been thought um, using uh, both um, innate immunity and adaptive immunity. Um, so the simplistic way I think about it and the way I explain it to patients, it's kind of like uh, you know, you, have a, you set a forest fire in your bladder and your body gets, puts out the fire and gets rid of any tumor cells that might be in there. Um, it's kind of simplistic, but it helps explain it. Um, certainly cytokines have a very important um, mechanism of action. Uh, we think that's one of, the, uh, one of the ways it works. And there's been some innovative um, combination uh, clinical trials looking at different cytokines in, in combination with BCG. Uh, we probably about 15 years ago was using a lot of BCG together with interferon. That's kind of fallen off. Uh, a typical induction treatment is uh, weekly for six weeks. Um, and then um, maintenance would be three treatments um, at 3, 6, 12, 18, 24 months. Um, some patients will push past two years, but lately with the BCG shortage, we've really cut down on the maintenance. And reduced dosing does seem to offer benefit. So in the shortage situation, or if patients are having a lot of uh, irritative symptoms, you can certainly dose reduce for those patients as well. And there's been uh, several different studies trying to 
clarify how important the dose is. And you can see here um, the reduced dose uh, and maintenance. And the bottom line is that you know, any BCG is better than none. If you can give full dose and if you can give all the maintenance, that's probably the best. Um, it's not always in our control. Uh, the AUA has a very important um, white paper or position statement on the BCG shortage. Um, and this does uh, incorporate risk stratification. So the first line there is very important. We shouldn't use BCG for the lowest risk patients. We really should save it for the patients that need it. Moving on to more definitions, um, defining failure, uh, so recurrences after BCG. Um, we used to use the term BCG refractory. We're trying to move away from that um, and be a little more specific. Um, we also introduced, we didn't, uh, NIH introduced the term of adequate BCG. So you really shouldn't say someone failed BCG if they haven't gotten an, an adequate dosage of it. And so typically, adequate BCG, and this is written into a lot of the current ongoing clinical trials in this space, is two induction courses of BCG, so that's two six-week courses, uh, or, um, and then typically of the six weeks, you'd want them to get at least five of the six, um, or induction plus one maintenance, and again, that would be five of six of the induction and two of three of the maintenance as a minimum. And now we're trying to parse out a little bit more accurately um, what we would consider failure. So we do still have the term BCG refractory, but we're trying to really limit that to patients that have persistent high-grade non-muscle invasive disease uh, after six months who have gotten adequate BCG. So they've never been disease-free. So you, you do their biopsy, give them BCG, scope them in three months, they have disease, give them more BCG, six months they still have disease. Uh, they're not responding to BCG. BCG relapsing is patients who do get disease-free and then have a later recurrence after BCG. BCG intolerant is that subset of patients who don't tolerate and can't get the BCG, either from urinary symptoms or um, systemic infection. And then BCG unresponsive, that's kind of taking the new terminology of what we used to call BCG refractory. That is a combination of different patient populations of the BCG refractory and the BCG relapsing. So these are patients who get adequate BCG and have uh, recurrence within 12 months, for, specifically for patients with CIS, or within six months if they have papillary disease only. The reason we sort of pay attention to these definitions is that this is baked into clinical trial design as mandated by FDA, and consequently, MD FDA will look for these schemas before they'll give uh, approval for new agents. Salvage therapies after BCG, there's been a lot of different things tried, um, usually chemotherapeutics. So valrubicin, gemcitabine, mitomycin, docetaxel. Um, and they're mostly small retrospective studies. Not great responses, but they do have responses. And so that uh, is for the patients who um, really will not tolerate or refuse a cystectomy. We can start thinking about some of these agents. Getting back to the single-dose postoperative chemotherapy, 
Um, mitomycin traditionally was the agent given, and then more recently, uh, SWOG did a trial of postoperative gemcitabine, and that in our practice has become the standard. Um, it's definitely better tolerated. Mitomycin really seemed to have more significant um, postoperative urinary symptoms. Um, also seemed to get calcification of the scar that patients sometimes would feel. Uh, gemcitabine seems to be better tolerated. So this is something that you need to uh, work into your workflow. Not every um, uh, operating room uh, has a chemo pharmacy. So with, um, with my patients, I operate at different locations. I have to be strategic on the ones that I think might, I might want to give gemcitabine to postoperatively in terms of where to do their procedures. And then in the non-muscle invasive space, uh, there is data and there is an FDA approval for the immune checkpoint inhibitors uh, for high-risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, uh, namely pembrolizumab, and we'll talk more about pembrolizumab later. Uh, this was approved about three years ago, and this again is for BCG uh, unresponsive high-risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, both for CIS with or without papillary disease. This is the Keynote 57 trial, 148 patients, and actually had a really uh, decent response rate, complete response rate of uh, 41%. It's a little bit of a departure from the typical workflow. Um, it has not really picked up very much. Uh, urologists are not typically going to give systemic pembrolizumab, and they're also maybe less likely to share their patients with a medonx, but it is something you need to be aware of uh, for the superficial bladder cancer patients. And then uh, also recently, natopherogene or astilodrin, uh, that, was, that was reported out probably about two years ago, a positive trial, and then for a variety of reasons, took a while to actually get FDA approval, but it was recently approved in December 2002. Uh, this is a uh, recombinant uh, adenovirus that actually, um, it's a form of gene therapy, uh, delivers the human interferon alpha 2b uh, into the bladder epithelium, and so it ramps up interferon production. Uh, and this showed significant improvement in the, in the BCG unresponsive uh, patients. When you look at the, uh, the uh, effic efficacy analysis of uh, astilodrin or natopherogene, you can see here the complete response rate out to 12 months uh, for CIS uh, of about 24% and for papillary uh, disease only about 43%. Not a home run, but still, still a, another option to offer patients who refuse or can't tolerate a cystectomy. As we get into worse disease, as you can see here, uh, muscle invasive uh, bladder cancer, these are the patients that really are at the highest risk of, um, of death of disease. These are the patients that we are maximally aggressive to try to uh, offer them the best chance for cure. So these are patients with T2 disease, meaning invading the muscularis propria, or T3 disease going through the muscularis propria. Uh, into the perivesical fat, either microscopically or grossly. These patients need to get very um, uh, um, intense uh, surveillance scans uh, for staging, um, and this is a, an area of need. We don't have a PSMA PET-type scan for bladder cancer yet, um, but uh, because 
Uh, conventional imaging, unfortunately, very commonly understages patients. Um, and these are patients that um, really, cystectomy should be considered um, unless the patient will not tolerate it. If not, you can switch to chemoradiation. Um, in the U.S., the general practice pattern is to be aggressive surgically. Uh, overseas, um, in Europe and uh, other places, they tend to view chemoradiation more equivalently to radical uh, cystectomy, um, but that's definitely a, a practice pattern variation. So the role of neoadjuvant chemotherapy uh, became defined uh, through a SWOG study several years ago. Um, this was uh, the uh, Grossman study. And this looked at patients with muscle-invasive uh, bladder cancer that are scheduled for a radical cystectomy. And then they looked at whether giving preoperative chemo, neoadjuvant chemotherapy, uh, and then followed by surgery versus upfront surgery uh, improve things. Uh, and this is based on the unfortunate, you know, uh, fact that even with aggressive surgery, probably upwards of 40% or more of bladder cancer patients will recur. So we, it's an area of unmet need to try to improve uh, cure rates. And here you can see that uh, preoperative chemotherapy offered us an astounding improvement in overall survival uh, with early separation of the Kaplan-Meier curves, a 2.6-year overall survival benefit. Um, another important um, observation from this trial is uh, the uh, finding of no residual disease in the radical cystectomy. And this was significantly higher, no surprise, in the patients that uh, had uh, preoperative chemotherapy. Now, there are patients with an aggressive TUR where you, you take their bladder out and you don't find any uh, cancer left, um, but you could see more than doubled the uh, PT0 rate. And the patients who had pathologic downstaging definitely appeared to do the best. Um, there's been several other phase three studies of neoadjuvant cisplatin combination chemotherapy uh, after this seminal paper by Grossman in 2003. Uh, we were fortunate enough to participate in a trial together with Fox Chase looking at dose dense or, ex or accelerated MVAC um, prior to surgery. And they've also done trials of gemcitabine and cisplatin prior to surgery, all of which show uh, similar benefits. Uh, the medical oncologists will shout from the hilltops that this should be the standard of care. Unfortunately, it's not really uh, uh, become as widespreadly recommended across, especially in the community, uh, probably because the chemo is fairly toxic. And that's where dose dense or accelerated MVAC can really help out. This is a, the schema of uh, the dose dense MVAC that uh, uh, has been adopted at Jefferson and a lot of places as a standard of care. The nice thing about it is that it's well tolerated. It's three cycles given every two weeks. And so it also builds in a much shorter delay from the initiation of treatment to eventual surgery, uh, which you know we do worry for the non-responders that we're delaying their surgery. And you can see here in, in our uh, small uh, multi-institutional trial a very similar uh, PT0 rate of 38%. And um, over half of the patients uh, were downgraded to less than uh, T2 disease, which we consider a, a positive effect. 
So we always sort of debate, you know, uh, when to give chemo and why would you give chemo pre-op as opposed to post-op. Can't you just take the bladder out, see if it is a high-risk tumor, if it's in uh, the perivesical fat, if it's in the lymph nodes, then give chemo. And this is a slide uh, from Jeannie Hoffman, um, Sentence at Hopkins. Um, and this is her description of what patients look like walking in her door pre-op and post-op. And so the sequence really does matter. It's much easier to give chemo and then go to the OR as opposed to the opposite where we take their bladder out, get a horrible path report, and then try to get chemo. Um, so we try not to miss an opportunity whenever possible. Adjuvant chemotherapy should not be ignored. Uh, there are certainly advantages. You have a more accurate risk stratification uh, there certainly may be over-treatment of some patients with neoadjuvant chemotherapy who may not need it. Um, but if you look at uh, mostly retrospective pooled data, about a third of patients will not ever be fit enough to get chemotherapy. And this really does lack level one evidence, whereas there's been several prospective uh, randomized trials in the neoadjuvant strategy showing benefit. There was a trial trying to compare pre-op versus post-op chemotherapy. Unfortunately, um, it did not accrue and had to close early, um, so we, that was a lost opportunity from Europe. It did, however, show that there seemed to be benefit in patients who got chemo first as opposed to chemo later. So if we look at the uh, um, guidelines for um, muscle-invasive metastatic bladder cancer, uh, there are some key recommendations from ASCO, and I pulled out uh, two of them. Uh, neo neoadjuvant chemotherapy is recommended for muscle-invasive bladder cancer, should always be a combination cisplatin-based chemo. So carboplatin is not a sufficient substitution. And then um, in the metastatic patients, the same sort of schema, combination cisplatin-based chemotherapy should be uh, first-line therapy in patients with locally advanced or metastatic disease. I mentioned pathologic downstaging and uh, looking at a variety of the different uh, neoadjuvant trials and the patients who did get a final pathology less than T2 seem to do the best. Uh, so if there are patients that have persistent T2 disease, muscle invasive disease after chemotherapy, they're at much higher risk of recurrence. Those patients we definitely may consider other adjuvant therapies for them. Preoperative pembrolizumab has also been investigated. So patients, um, similar type schema, muscle-invasive bladder cancer patients maybe who can't get cisplatin combination chemotherapy. Uh, this is the PURE-01 study. This looked at uh, preoperative pembrolizumab. Uh, this was a phase two trial. Um, they received... Um, uh, three cycles, three weeks apart of pembrolizumab, and then went on to surgery. Um, and surprisingly, uh, maybe not surprisingly, almost the exact same pathologic T0 rate, 39%. Uh, and these patients seem to do well. So this is another potential option in the neoadjuvant space uh, if they can't tolerate uh, cisplatin. Moving forward to metastatic urethelial carcinoma. Uh, immunotherapy has kind of taken the world by storm, um, and this is uh, an observation that the interplay between uh, 
PD and PDL, so program death and program death ligand. It's a very blunt name. Um, in the interaction between T cells and tumor cells, that interaction, if you can augment or alter that, can lead to the body's own immune system taking care of residual disease. The way I, simplistic way I think about it, is that we have the brake and the, and the uh, gas pedal, and what you want to do is take the brake off the immune system and step on the gas and rev it up. And this is where, um, you know, trying to impact the T-cell antigen uh, uh, linkage. And this is where uh, PDL, PD-1 inhibitors, and the CTLA-4 inhibitors can come into play. And so, it's very complicated immunology, and you can see here there's multiple potentially targetable um, agents, um, CDL, CTLA-4, PDL one OX-40, um, and you're basically using different antibodies to try to block the effect, either block the uh, inhibition of immunology or block the break and allow the gas pedal. If you look at the NCCN, uh, principles of systemic therapy. So first-line therapy for locally advanced and metastatic urothelial carcinoma. As I mentioned earlier, for those patients that are fit for cisplatin, similar to the ASCO guidelines, they really should get combination cisplatin-based chemotherapy, uh, either MVAC or a gemcitabine uh, cisplatin. For cisplatin ineligible, this is where we will sometimes think about gemcitabine in combination with carboplatin, knowing full well that the response rates are worse. Pembrolizumab, as I mentioned, and then there's a bunch of other different agents that be, can be considered. Uh, but those patients, unfortunately, the cisplatin-ineligible metastatic bladder cancer patients, unfortunately, have a very poor response rate and overall survival. The definition of cisplatin ineligible is not necessarily straightforward. We look, certainly look at creatinine, um, and uh, serum creatinine is an estimate. Uh, we tend to be very aggressive with 24-hour urines to try to get the most accurate uh, picture of their overall renal function. Performance status is also vitally important. This is toxic chemo. If they're not able to get out of bed, they're not going to do well. Um, and then other specific um, uh, contraindications mainly based on the cisplatin side effects, hearing loss and neuropathy. If they have pre-existing hearing loss or neuropathy, uh, those patients can be miserable with platin, cisplatin and we typically would avoid it. If you look at this, uh, in general, very old, frail, comor comorbid patient population, uh, a significant number of them would fit the definition of cisplatin ineligible, unfortunately. So I mentioned at the beginning that it's kind of exciting. There's, there's been a, a, an explosion of different treatment options. So my uh, residency and fellowship is sort of right in the middle of the first two goalposts uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s. Cisplatin was approved in the late 70s. Gemcitabine was uh, approved in the mid-2000s. And that whole time in between, there really was nothing new for metastatic bladder cancer patients. And then in the last 10 to 15 years, we've had just one new treatment after another. When we look at uh, the advanced bladder cancer landscape, uh, for the platinum ineligible, certainly cisplatin is the backbone, and then we also have PDL1. But the platinum ineligible patients really is an area of unmet need. 
um, with response rates in the 20 percent uh, range. And so when we're looking at metastatic or advanced urothelial carcinoma, we really are immediately deciding if they're chemotherapy eligible or not. Um, and then if they're cisplatin ineligible or cisplatin ineligible. And unfortunately, as you can see, if they're not chemo eligible, we're really not offering them much, unfortunately. Oh, this slide didn't come out too well. Um, I thought I fixed this. I apologize. So this is Javelin Bladder 100. And this is uh, another uh, attempt to try to figure out the best combination. So we have all these new agents. How do you put them all together? And so this is uh, a phase three study looking at metastatic urethelial carcinoma patients who got um, first-line cisplatin combination chemotherapy or carboplatin chemotherapy and then were randomized after chemo to one of the PDL uh, you know, immune checkpoint inhibitors, Avelumab, or best supportive care alone. Um, and this looked at overall survival um, and progression-free survival. So they get chemo, and then they get put on maintenance uh, immune checkpoint inhibition. And this actually showed significant benefit. So this has become the new paradigm um, with overall survival benefits combining post-chemo immune checkpoint inhibition. Going back to uh, the NCCN guidelines, this is for second-line systemic therapy. Uh, and you can see it's, it's complicated, but at least we have some options here. Um, looking at immune checkpoint inhibition, second-line chemotherapy regimens, and then there are some new targeted treatments as well. So here you can see, um, let me see. I thought I moved a slide, but I didn't. I apologize. So we're going to talk later about ertafitinib and fortimab, and there's a new one that I can't pronounce that's another antibody drug conjugate as well. Another observation that um, has been found is that for metastatic um, urethelial carcinoma, there is a significant number of those tumors that have alterations in the FGFR receptor. That's the fibroblast growth factor receptor. And they do have a target for that, and that's ertafitinib. And so we'll talk about that later. We can see here that um, several different trials looking at second-line treatment. Unfortunately, uh, two of the trials over here were positive in the phase two and, the, and were approved, and then subsequently their phase three were negative trials, and so the, the FDA withdrawal, withdrew approval for uh, atezolizumab and dervalumab uh, for um, second-line treatment in this patient population. This is the one that I can't pronounce. Uh, if anyone wants to tell me, sasetuzumab, govotekin? Um, this is an antibody drug conjugate. So this is an antibody targeting an uh, uh, antigen that's very commonly upregulated in advanced bladder cancer. This is trophoblast cell surface antigen, or TROP2. And this is combined with a cytotoxic chemotherapy. So it's a, a targeted therapy specifically for this cell surface receptor. And this was, uh, you know, sort of... Uh, 
end-of-the-line, uh, multi-lines of treatment patients, failing chemo, failing checkpoint inhibition, and actually had a 27% response rate and a 5% complete response rate. Everything disappeared. So when we talk about the landscape of advanced bladder cancer, if we start with 100% of patients with uh, advanced metastatic, only about half of them get the best first therapy, cisplatin combination chemotherapy. Only a fraction of those patients get second-line therapy, and a tiny proportion get third-line therapy. So unfortunately, utilization of these agents has been slow, and these patients really are in dire straits. Uh, looking at second-line therapy, and there's been a lot of uh, excitement in trying to pick out and identify new targets. Uh, I'll also talk about infortimab as well. But infortimab is another antibody drug conjugate. Ertafitinib is the FGFR inhibitor, and then the other anti antibody drug conjugate, as I mentioned. If they fail that, and we're not going to put these patients on hospice, then typically we'd think about single-agent chemotherapy, perhaps just docetaxel monotherapy, um, really just for symptom improvement. Lots of different targetable, druggable uh, uh, aspects in the pathway. So there's a, a, finally a lot of exciting research going on in bladder cancer, um, which was not done in the past. And these are some of the uh, trials. And this is, you know, we identify agents in the that appear to work as uh, monotherapy in the worst patients. Then, of course, we then try to move it earlier in combinations to see what we combine to try to improve uh, response rates. And this, I apologize, I thought I moved the slide up, but ertafitinib is the oral FGFR inhibitor. Uh, this is approved for second-line metastatic disease. They have to have FGFR alterations, so that's a uh, tissue diagnostic. And this had an overall response rate of 32%, very small, but there were some complete responses. Uh, and Fortimab is another antibody drug conjugate um, uh, targeting Nectin-4. That's another cell surface uh, molecule uh, upregulated in about 80, 83% of bladder cancer. Uh, this was approved for third-line metastatic uh, urothelial carcinoma. And then actually, in the last three weeks, it was recently approved in combination with pembrolizumab uh, uh, for first-line therapy for cisplatin-ineligible patients. So, m again, moving something earlier to help that area of need. And then I just have a, a couple slides about upper-track urothelial carcinoma. So the vast majority of urothelial carcinoma is bladder cancer, you know, probably 90 95%. Uh, but there are patients who develop primary upper-track urothelial carcinoma. Um, it's uncommon. It's typically patients that have had previous bladder cancer and then uh, recur or uh, progress up the uh, ureter to the kidney. Um, we sort of extrapolate from the bladder cancer data because it's the same uh, tissue type, it's the same urothelium. We don't necessarily have level one evidence to prove that the same treatments that we give for bladder cancer are also appropriate for upper tract urothelial carcinoma. Uh, Jeannie Hoffman-Sensitz, um, through ECOG, 
um, did do a neoadjuvant uh, MVAC trial, so similar to neoadjuvant chemo prior to cystectomy, uh, giving neoadjuvant chemo prior to nephrouterectomy for upper tract disease. And this um, is a little bit more controversial. Um, it's a rare disease. This was not um, a very large study. But we do need to keep in mind that for that specific uh, condition of upper tract urothelial carcinoma, where they're going to get a nephrectomy, where they're almost certainly going to be cisplatin ineligible post-op, that might be a window where we can try to give them chemo that they would never be able to get post-op up front. And then um, the POUT trial uh, also looked at post-operative gemcitabine cisplatin or gemcitabine carboplatin, so adjuvant treatment for these patients also is in the armamentarium. And with that, I will thank you. All right, so we're going to move ahead to uh, renal cancer or kidney cancer, uh, starting with uh, overview, epidemiology, uh, not as common, 2 to 3% of all cancer deaths in the U.S. each year. It's a cancer of a uh, little bit later uh, uh, from an age standpoint, uh, the 60s and 70s uh, decades in both men and women. It's increased by 2% per year over, over the past 65 years. Most of the tumors are renal cell carcinoma. Most of those are clear cell. Uh, stage really dictates survival with uh, high survival in stage one disease and very poor survival in stage four disease. There are some pre-existing factors, uh, smoking and obesity. Uh, certainly there are hereditary types of renal cell carcinoma, which I'll mention a little bit later. And surgical resection really remains the only effective therapy for a localized renal cell carcinoma. So the 2022 kidney cancer uh, statistics, new cases for both men and women. Now, one thing about this is they do lump together uh, both cancers of the kidney and the renal pelvis, so kidney cancer as well as urothelial cancer, although what Ed did just mention is that the incidence of urothelial cancer or upper tract urothelial cancer is quite small. So most of these cases really represent uh, renal cell carcinoma cases, and it's in the top 10 for both men and women in 2022. However, uh, when looking at mortality, uh, kidney cancer falls out of the uh, top 10 for uh, both men and women uh, in 2022. This is a slide that uh, kind of mirrors what I mentioned earlier. So the age of diagnosis or the decade of diagnosis for most, most renal cell carcinomas are kind of in the late middle age, like uh, 60s and 70s uh, in both men and women. Again, it's a, it is a very heterogeneous disease. When we look at the, um, uh, how we divide it up, there's clear cell and non-clear cell, so that's really how we like to define uh, kidney cancer uh, in general. Uh, as I mentioned, clear cell is the most common histology, although papillary, which is the second most uh, common, at one time was split into type 1 and type 2. However, more recently, uh, we've lumped together both type 1 and type 2 into a single papillary renal cell carcinoma. The third most common type is the chromophobe renal cell carcinoma, 
which mimics uh, oncocytoma. They come from the same uh, nephron or part of the nephron, although chromophobe is considered malignant and uh, oncocytoma is considered a benign tumor. And then some other benign tumors uh, are, are mentioned down below. Um, although, as I said, over 90% of all metastatic renal cell carcinoma is the clear cell variant. Uh, so this is what it looks like under the microscope. Uh, again, clear cell, uh, which is the most common type of renal cell carcinoma, has that really distinct clear cytoplasm. It is associated with von Hippel-Lindau disease. Papillary disease has been now lumped together, although this is what type 1 and type 2 looked like respectively. With type 2, you saw a lot more eosinophilic cells. However, they both have that papillary, finger-like, frondular uh, uh, histologic appearance. Um, so that is what we look for uh, when we are defining papillary renal cell carcinoma. And both of those also are associated with very specific uh, mutations. Getting into chromophobe and oncocytoma, although it doesn't really appear that way on this slide, under the microscope they can actually very, very similarly um, uh, mimic each other and it can be very difficult to tell one from the other, although our, our uh, GU pathologists at our institution are very good at not just detecting it by H&E uh, by &E staining, but using even more uh, advanced immunohistochemical staining in order to tell one from the other. Both of them can actually be present in Berthog-Dubé syndrome, and I have a couple patients with Berthog-Dubé who uh, have both chromophobe renal cell carcinoma and oncocytoma. As far as the staging goes, again, staging really dictates the survival with renal cell carcinoma. Staging is done by tumor size. Seven centimeter is the cutoff for T1. Uh, above seven centimeter, but organ confined is T2. And then regardless of size, if it's a locally advanced tumor, which goes through the capsule of the, uh, of the kidney, either into the perinephric fat or into the renal sinus, that's considered T3 disease in contiguous structures is T4 disease. Uh, looking at the uh, survival, um, again, I kind of mentioned this earlier, localized disease, um, that is going to be the highest stage of presentation and the highest survival. So, and then locally advanced disease is this. So this is T3 disease. We do still have some success there. And then with distant metastases, um, then you're seeing um, a much more uh, poor survival. And what's been taught to us over time is that approximately a third of all renal cell carcinoma is metastatic at presentation. Unlike urothelial carcinoma, which is a chemotherapy-responsive tumor, um, renal cell carcinoma is really not. There have been 83 trials lumping 4,000 patients together with an overall response rate of really only 6%. And these are some of the agents that have, have some activity against renal cell carcinoma, but in general, uh, these are used in very, very, very uh, uh, small uh, select circumstances or really not at all. However, we have been doing better with renal cell carcinoma uh, over the decades uh, from a one-year and five-year survival. The curves, although it's difficult to tell with this just because it's so spread out, however, when you look at the first point and the end point uh, in both of these uh, curves, uh, you see about a 10 to 20% improval in survival for renal cell carcinoma over the years, which tells us that we are certainly doing better. 
Renal cell carcinoma is also considered a very immunologically responsive tumor. Believe it or not, spontaneous remissions have been documented. Also, a very hardy abscopal effect is associated with renal cell carcinoma where you remove the primary tumor and you can actually see regression of metastatic disease. There is an increased risk of these cancers in patients with immunodeficient states, either HIV or patients who are transplant recipients on immunosuppressive medications. And these tumors uh, certainly are uh, seen to harbor, harbor uh, a significant amount of tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, which again points to their immunogenicity. So, I'm going to go a little bit different than what Ed did. Ed started with local disease and went to metastatic disease. However, when you consider systemic therapy for kidney cancer, really metastatic disease, at least for a while, is, is what we were looking at. So, and I, I got this slide actually from one of our medical oncologists, uh, Dr. Zarabi, who's, who's at Jefferson. And this is the way that he looks at metastatic kidney cancer, right? And I think that it makes a lot of sense, which is why I included it here. So his first step is to risk stratify these patients. And he uses the IMDC uh, risk model. And the actual uh, uh, characteristics or the uh, variables that he uses are listed in the table below. And patients, and looking at the Kaplan-Meier curves to the right of that, patients with better risk disease do better. Patients with lower, poor risk disease do worse. So this is why it's important to risk stratify these patients. Another thing uh, about risk stratification, again, using that IMDC model, is that looking at the variables as they're listed, about 80% of patients who present with metastatic renal cell carcinoma actually harbor intermediate or poor risk disease. So the majority of these patients who are showing up with metastatic disease are gonna be poor intermediate or intermediate or poor risk off the bat and aren't going to be eligible for some of the regimens <coughs> which uh, actually are intended for patients with better risk disease. So now that we've risk stratified our, our patients, the next step that uh, Dr. Zarabi would like to, for us to consider is, should we remove the primary tumor? And now this is radical when you think about it. And you're looking at the studies which are below, which is a combination of the SWOG and EORTC studies which were published back in 2004, using patients uh, who received actually interferon alpha. And the conclusions of those studies is that cytoreductive nephrectomy offered a survival advantage, really, really dramatic, and the highest benefit was in patients who, who actually had a better performance status. They reported minimal surgical complications. Now, the problem is that at the time, we thought this was really more or less of a modest benefit, and it took a long time to actually accrue these patients, so it was a very heterogeneous population. However, I think the biggest point that needs to be considered when looking at those two studies is that nearly all the patients who were enrolled in those studies actually received systemic therapy. However, those studies drove our practice patterns for at least 10 to 15 years. So everybody's showing up on our doorstep with metastatic disease. If we thought we could get it out, we were getting it out. Right? And I think that we hurt a lot of patients in doing that and actually may have prevented them from actually getting to systemic therapy, which brings up this next point. You can, we'd learned, unfortunately, the hard way that we were performing cytoreductive nephrectomy actually in the wrong patient. 
And there are, on the left, I mentioned tumor-specific variables, and on the right, patient-specific variables on we, why we should not be performing cytoreductive nephrectomy on these patients, but we didn't have the level one evidence that they had back in 2004 until this. This is the Carmina and the SIRTIME trials that just were recently published uh, within the last five years. They were designed a little bit different, but both were looking at strategies of cytoreductive nephrectomy upfront versus systemic therapy upfront, and what was the ideal way to actually treat these patients who were showing up with, with metastatic renal cell carcinoma. So the first patient that I, uh, the first trial that I'm showing is the Carmina trial. Patients were randomized to actually receive nephrectomy versus, followed by sunitinib uh, versus uh, sunitinib alone. Uh, and it was a non-inferiority trial. And as you can see, uh, actually the, the um, survival curves actually very much uh, mirrored each other. So this is actually the SIRTIME trial, uh, again, designed a little bit differently. However, it was also looking at systemic therapy versus nephrectomy with the patients who received systemic therapy upfront actually receiving a nephrectomy down the road. And I, I like the design of this trial because what it allowed us to actually do with these patients is that those patients who were seen to progress on systemic therapy, as opposed to jumping into nephrectomy at that point when they probably were doing very, very poorly, it allowed for us to administer a second line systemic therapy in these patients, right? So in other words, you would select out those patients who would do best with cytoreductive nephrectomy versus those patients who may do better with a second systemic therapy. And by doing that, you would, imp you would improve the ability to uh, toggle those patients who did failed upfront systemic therapy to get a second systemic therapy and actually improve their survival. So in looking at it this way, after Carmena and Sir time, should we remove the kidney, the primary tumor, in patients who present with metastatic renal cell carcinoma? The, actual, the answer is not really necessarily, especially for patients who are poor risk or high risk tumors or those patients with a very, very poor performance status. Again, this slide doesn't show up well. However, what do we know regarding cytoreductive nephrectomy in 2023? It really only improves survival if systemic therapy is delivered. Not all patients who undergo cytoreductive nephrectomy unfortunately receive systemic therapy, and not all patients who undergo cytoreductive nephrectomy really require systemic therapy. And I think that the Carmena and Sir time really has changed how we look at this. These are the NCC and guidelines. Uh, which shows that patients who would be candidates for cytoreductive nephrectomy, in other words, if we think we can safely remove the tumor, these are the patients who should be getting it, whereas those patients who show up with very bulky disease, very bulky adenopathy, a large tumor burden outside of the actual kidney, those are the patients who we should be considering for up upfront systemic therapy. So now we've risk stratified our patients. Now we've considered a cytoreductive nephrectomy in our patients, and then the final question is, do we really need to start systemic therapy immediately? And this has been looked at actually in some smaller phase two trials. However, the answer is we don't necessarily need to because, and I see our medical oncologists doing this more and more, they'll have a patient with a minimal amount of metastatic disease who may receive an upfront cytoreductive nephrectomy, and they're not going to jump into systemic therapy with these patients. Uh, they're actually just going to follow them. And as a result, 
these patients uh, may be, uh, because they're not receiving systemic therapy, their quality of life is going to better. So actually you can uh, define a subset of patients who you don't necessarily need to start systemic therapy on, even though they're presenting with metastatic renal cell carcinoma. Again, kind of changes the way that we look at metastatic disease currently in patients who present with metastatic renal cell carcinoma. So uh, Ed showed his own slide of where his residency lies in the treatment regimen or the, the treatment uh, timeline for metastatic urothelial cancer. This is kidney cancer, right? So there's the cytokine era, right, which was kind of the iron age of uh, treatment. And my, our residencies were in here. And then after we finished our residencies, came the uh, targeted area, which I'm going to show. However, with the cytokine era, here's the NCC and guidelines, and I'm not going to bore you with this. Really, only interferon alpha and IL-2 were mentioned in the NCC and guidelines. And when I was a resident, this was all that we had to administer to these patients. IL-2 was really, really toxic. And interferon, if you remember, that was the agent that they showed in those patients who received the cytoreductor uh, nephrectomy, so those trials back in 2004. And then came the targeted uh, era, which is uh, the more modern era that just ended back in 2015. The highlight or the underlying principle of the targeted era was the elucidation of the VHL uh, suppressor gene. So tumor genesis is dependent on mutation of the VHL tumor suppressor gene, which is really present, again, in 90% of patients with clear cell renal cell carcinoma. So in uh, a normal individual, VHL encodes for the ligase that targets HIF, and in a mutated gene, you get an overexpression of HIF, which drives all of these other uh, uh, factors here, namely VEGF, which are drivers of angiogenesis, and that leads to uh, actual tumor formation. And I pointed out VEGF because when considering VEGF positive versus VEGF negative tumors, there is actually a... Uh, decreased survival in those patients with uh, VEGF-positive tumors, which again are likely those patients with uh, clear cell renal cell carcinoma. So that principle alone drove the research that led to uh, the development of all of these agents which targeted various pathways uh, led by an overexpression of HIF, which is a VHL mutation, and these are the agents which are, we're going to be talking about uh, at this point. So uh, the first one that was studied, this was published back in New England Journal of Medicine back in 2007, was sunitinib or sutint. It was compared against interferon alpha in patients with metastatic renal cell carcinoma. And looking at the uh, forest plot, which is on the left or on the right, uh, sunitinib is on the left versus interferon alpha. So across all groups that were studied, uh, you saw an actual advantage uh, in patients who received uh, sunitinib. However, when looking at the adverse events, and this is one of, really one of the drawbacks of those targeted therapies, uh, so those VEGF-targeted therapies, they were very, very difficult to tolerate. And this is the dreaded uh, hand-foot syndrome, uh, which looks which feels just as bad as it looks. I mean, these patients were miserable. Uh, so these, these inflammatory reactions on the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet, they couldn't walk, they couldn't grab anything. It was really, really difficult for them to tolerate. And it was really, and it was elucidated, at least in this trial. 
In the same journal that published on uh, sunitinib was this article on serafinib. Again, this was the article that led to its approval also for patients with uh, metastatic renal cell carcinoma. It was compared to placebo, also was a positive trial. And like I mentioned, this was the advent of the targeted therapy era. So we knew what the VHL suppressor gene did. We knew that there were targetable uh, molecules uh, which we could uh, uh, manufacture or develop drugs against. And these are the studies, uh, most of them phase three, which led to uh, the development of the drugs uh, during the targeted uh, era. Again, at the time, and I'm going to hit, hit this a few times, the comparator was really the prior era, which was interferon, which had a very, very modest uh, effect anyway. So it was kind of like you were, you were the bully picking on the little kid. Um, one thing that, uh, a study that we actually uh, looked at very, very closely at Jefferson, and it kind of drove our treatment uh, patterns at that time, was the COMPARES trial, where now you're comparing, as opposed to interferon, you're looking at a new agent called pazopinib uh, and comparing it to, to sunitinib. And this was a randomized trial. Again, patients were randomized to receive pazopinib versus sunitinib, uh, and this was a first-line treatment for metastatic renal cell carcinoma. It was a non-inferiority trial, but looking at the curves in progression-free survival and overall survival, they completely mirror each other, so it shows uh, non-inferiority of pazopinib versus, versus sunitinib. However, I think that the more impressive part of the study looked at the adverse events. Again, this is the forest plot. Looking at pazopinib, most of those uh, side effects you saw, um, which, which were uh, 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 seen in, with patients who received sunitinib, uh, the side effect profile was much less with pazopinib, and it became one of the agents that we used, especially toward the end of the targeted therapy, of the targeted therapy era. And again, these are the agents that were, that were FDA approved at around 2015. Okay, so again, we've talked about the dark age. Here's our residencies. Then became the modern age, which was the targeted therapy era, which ended around 2015. But more recently, we have entered the golden age for the treatment uh, for systemic therapy for metastatic renal cell carcinoma. Although the first agent that I'm going to show there is actually a targeted agent. It's called cabazatinib, but it inhibits many of those targets that I showed on that one slide where the elucidation of the VHL gene and all the molecules that came from it that drove angiogenesis. Cabazatinib not only hit VEGF, but met and as well as uh, uh, Axel. So, and it's considered a very, very uh, potent drug, which we actually still use, and it still is in the guidelines for first-line treatment of metastatic renal cell carcinoma. So this was the Cabasun trial that, again, uh, kind of launched cabazatinib. It was compared against sunitinib, so it's a targeted agent versus a targeted agent. These patients had poor or intermediate risk uh, disease, and you saw cabazatinib outperform uh, sunitinib, again, with the curves uh, separating uh, very early on. So, and as a result of this study, cabazatinib was approved for first-line treatment in metastatic renal cell carcinoma in those patients with intermediate or poor risk disease. However, around the same time came this study, 
which again was looking at patients who had been pretreated, so they'd already been on uh, at least a couple targeted agents, and they were going to see how did they do uh, with nivolumab. Um, so it, it was one of the PD-1 uh, therapies. Uh, it was given to patients who were pretreated, published in the New England Journal of Medicine. It was compared against Everolimus. Everolimus was one of the targeted agents, and nivolumab outperformed Everolimus, again, in this patient population and showed activity of uh, the target uh, of the immunotherapies in metastatic renal cell carcinoma, and kind of opened the doors to what could be imagined uh, at that from at that point. So on the heels of this came this study looking at combination immunotherapy, a combination immunotherapy regimen. So you had nivolumab, which was anti-PD1. Again, remember the slide that Ed showed you about the checkpoint inhibitors. You added ipilimumab, which is an anti-CTLA-4 molecule, and that was a combination trial, right? So it's a combination regimen, iotherapy, looking at patients first line with clear cell renal cell carcinoma, over 1,000 patients, so pretty good numbers, uh, and it was compared against sutent, or sunitinib, and again, you saw the uh, combination iotherapy very well outperform from a uh, disease-free and an overall survival standpoint, uh, uh, sutent. Um, so as a result, uh, Ipinevo, which is, as, as we know the uh, regimen now, was approved for first-line uh, treatment in patients with intermediate or poor-risk metastatic renal cell carcinoma. And I specify poor risk because when you look at this trial, Sunitinib actually outperformed the combination IO therapy for patients with favorable risk disease. Again, that 20% of patients who have that favorable risk disease actually, by this trial, benefited more by Sunitinib. So at least at this time, Sunitinib was still in the NCC and guidelines for treatment of patients with metastatic renal cell carcinoma, first line, who had favorable disease. The other thing that I should mention about this uh, is that when you looked at the tolerability of the combination immunotherapy regimen versus the targeted therapy regimen, I already showed you what the targeted therapies, how harsh it was to these patients. This, the combination immunotherapy regimen was very, very well tolerated in comparison. So, and we knew that from the bladder cancer as well. These are drugs that are well tolerated with these patients. They do have their own side effects. However, it's, they were thought to be much better tolerated than the targeted agents uh, for patients with metastatic renal cell carcinoma. So now we have two regimens or two drug uh, categories which we know have efficacy against metastatic renal cell carcinoma. The first are the targeted agents, which was that modern age, and the second are the immunotherapies. So the question comes, well, what happens when you combine these? And this is the era that we're in, uh, at least at this point. Um, this was published back in 2019, uh, pembrolizumab plus axitinib. I see it even uh, advertised today at this meeting. This was a trial looking at patients who were untreated. So again, first-line therapy, patients with metastatic clear cell renal cell carcinoma. They were uh, randomized to receive pembroaxi versus sunitinib, looking at overall survival and progression-free survival uh, as their primary endpoints. And the combination regimen significantly outperformed uh, sunitinib uh, from an, from, for both progression-free uh, and overall survival.
Now, when looking at the adverse events, now you're comparing more apples to apples because it's not that combination immunotherapy regimen, but it's a combination regimen with an immunotherapy and a targeted therapy. And you're comparing it against a targeted therapy. So now you're seeing the adverse events kind of more closely approximate each other. So these, this combination regimen, although you saw more efficacy, you were seeing the adverse events that you saw with the uh, monotherapy uh, targeted agent. Although when you look at it, you're getting a better response with the same side effects. So it's still thought to be a better regimen. And based on this, the FDA did approve Pembroaxi for first-line treatment for advanced clear cell renal cell carcinoma. The Checkmate 9 trial looked at nivolumab plus cabozatinib. Again, cabozatinib is that wonder kid from a targeted therapy drug combined with nivolumab, which we already know has activity against metastatic renal cell carcinoma, although that trial was in patients who had uh, received other therapies this is upfront, first-line treatment, uh, and again, randomized against uh, sunitinib, looking at the primary endpoint, which is progression-free survival, with the secondary endpoint uh, being overall survival. And again, you see a dramatic response uh, in patients uh, who receive the combination therapy against uh, sunitinib. The curves uh, separate very, very early on, um, uh, and this led to approval of this. The one thing I will mention is that this, as opposed to the, uh, the IPINEVO trial, which really only showed benefit in patients with IMDC, intermediate or poor risk disease, the benefit with this trial uh, was across all IMDC risk groups. So when you look at the NCC and guidelines, uh, you're going to see the, uh, the uh, regimen that I'm talking about here actually across all different um, uh, IMDC groups, not just the, the uh, intermediate, intermediate and poor risk. Uh, new, new kit on the block as far as this goes is levatinib, sorry, so it was pembrolizumab. Uh, again, this was randomized against, uh, in this case, uh, everolimus, although this was uh, kind of a, a, a three-arm trial, so you had Levatinib plus Pembro versus Levatinib plus Everolimus, which is a targeted agent, again, and then randomizing it against Sunitinib. So it was a one-to-one-to-one -one -one randomization. Um, and this was the, um, uh, the Kaplan-Meier curves as a result of it. And looking at the forest plot, the forest plot that's shown on the right is actually the combination targeted therapy with immunotherapy regimen versus Sutent alone. And again, Along all IMDC risk groups, along all substratification, you saw a benefit of this regimen uh, versus uh, Sutent. And it actually showed benefit over the combined levatinib everolimus, um, which was a targeted agent, uh, uh, actually two targeted agents, um, where you're, you're again seeing the, um, the benefit more of the targeted and IO therapy, the levatinib and pembrolizumab. Uh, and as a result of this, the FDA did approve levatinib and pembrolizumab again in its first-line treatment for patients with advanced renal cell carcinoma. So looking at the NCC and guidelines from April of 2023, so just before this meeting, again, thinking back to what I told you about metastatic disease, you first need to risk stratify your patients 
favorable or poor intermediate risk. Looking at favorable disease, although SUTINT is still in there for other recommended regimens based on that IPINEVO trial, all of the targeted, uh, all of the combination therapies that I mentioned are now considered the preferred regimens, which are immunotherapy plus targeted agents put together. For the poor to intermediate risk, again, you're looking at a lot of the combination regimens, including the dual uh, uh, immunotherapy regimen, IPINEVO, and cabozatinib is still hanging in there, uh, again, as the preferred uh, uh, regimens, and these are other recommended regimens. And then getting down to the um, second-line treatments, io iotherapy naive and prior iotherapy, uh, these are the regimens that we're actually looking at. But again, this is for clear cell renal cell carcinoma. When looking at the non-clear cell histologies, and I unfortunately have been ignoring that a lot here, only because there aren't really many options for it. So still looking at the preferred regimens, cabozatinib, sunitinib, and a clinical trial. So the immunotherapy combined regimens, although they work very well against patients with clear cell renal cell carcinoma, we have yet to really show the benefit in patients uh, uh, with non-clear non cell histology, which again can represent for up to 15% up to of those patients uh, with metastatic renal cell carcinoma. And this is an area uh, really of active research. The last uh, point that I wanted to make with these trials is that most of these combination regimens uh, were compared against uh, sunitinib. We haven't really seen trials that have, that have compared uh, the separate uh, combination regimens. So like I said, I was going to start with metastatic disease, and then I was going to go to localized disease, because there are some new, uh, uh, some new recommendations with regard to localized disease, which I think are worth mentioning. It used to be very easy with stage one through three tumors. You resect the tumor, partial or complete nephrectomy. It was really at the discretion of the surgeon. Now we're wondering, is there an adjuvant therapy that we can actually uh, give to these patients? And this is the targeted agents and uh, looked at in, uh, in the adjuvant setting uh, for patients with locally advanced disease. Most of those were negative studies, although the S-TRAC study did show uh, benefit with regard to disease-free survival. It did not show the benefit with regard to overall survival. S-TRAC looked at sunitinib. We've already talked about the tolerability of sunitinib. So as a result of this, a lot of our medical oncologists really didn't necessarily want to give this drug in the adjuvant setting for patients with locally advanced renal cell carcinoma, although the FDA did approve it. As far as immunotherapies, these are the studies uh, that have looked at it. Some of those studies have come back negative. The Keynote uh, 564 looked at adjuvant pembrolizumab. It did show a benefit with regard to disease-free survival. This is a study. Again, uh, patients uh, were randomized to receive adjuvant pembrolizumab versus placebo. This was the disease states that came in. So large tumors that were lo locally, that were local, localized to the kidney, however, with a very high nuclear grade, locally advanced tumors, patients with lymph node positivity, or metastatic disease. And in this, these last two cases, they were completely resected. The disease-free survival was the primary endpoint. 
And here are the curves that we looked at. Um, the median overall survival was not reached in either group, although they did show uh, a 32% lower uh, risk of death uh, with adjuvant uh, pembrolizumab. And again, this is intermediate risk, and this is high risk, and these are patients uh, with metastatic disease. So not really the best um, data. However, it did show activity, and as a result, the FDA has approved um, adjuvant pembrolizumab in those patients, again, with these disease uh, states, uh, which were looked at uh, in the trial, uh, in, uh, so in the adjuvant setting for patients with renal cell carcinoma. So these are the guidelines. Again, patients with uh, local disease or locally advanced disease and a high-grade tumor, these patients are thought to potentially benefit from uh, uh, adjuvant pembrolizumab, or even down here, it mentions uh, sunitinib uh, as part of that S-TRAX uh, trial. So, but however, again, pembrolizumab is better tolerated. So what we're seeing at our own institution is that those patients who are young with locally advanced tumors who we think may benefit from adjuvant therapy, they're actually more uh, readily uh, going to administer this to these patients, again, because it's tolerated so much better than those targeted agents. And as a result, we think that we may be doing uh, some benefit to those patients. All right, do I need to show the, the post-test at this point? Do I, do we don't go through the post-test again? Okay, all right, so uh, at this point, we have a little fun. So um, I actually brought this back. Uh, for the first year that we presented this, we had case presentations looking at prostate cancer, bladder cancer, and kidney cancer patients. So I have cases that we actually saw in our, um, uh, in our own clinics. And I'm going to call on my panel here today to give their recommendations. The interesting thing about this is when I looked through this, I had to actually modify the cases based on current recommendations. And it's really dramatic how, because of the way that the guidelines have changed, the studies that have come out, the changes that I've had to make in these cases because of new things that are actually available to these patients. So our first patient uh, was presented in 2010 with a PSA of 1.6, had a nodule on his uh, prostate. Um, this is his HPI, past medical surgical history, not really much there. Um, family, social history. Patient underwent a transrectal uh, biopsy. Uh, at that time, he had uh, what was uh, Gleason 5 plus 3 disease, which is now grade group 4 disease. Maximum core involvement uh, was 100%. So at this point, um, to my panel... What are our staging options for this patient? He has high-risk disease, grade group 4 disease, doesn't really have much of a PSA, but had a nodule on exam. How would you stage these patients? B and G. B and G. So CT scan and a bone scan. Um, how old was our patient? I didn't give an age. So if this patient were over the age of 65, how would you stage this patient? So, um, so this raises the question of a next-generation imaging. Um, and in NCCN, 
for patients that are newly diagnosed, high risk or very high risk, and he would be considered high risk with a grade group four. There is uh, support for doing upfront PSMA PET as the initial staging study. Um, it is not uh, necessarily universally covered, um, and there's a lot of controversy about the availability of some of the next generation imaging. Um, sodium fluoride PET is a sort of a super duper bone scan. Um, had some, had a splash, so to speak, maybe 10 years ago. It's not really around anymore. Um, so depending on, on the insurance and the uh, coverage, at a minimum you would want conventional imaging, but it would not at all be unreasonable to start with a PSMA PET. So, and I actually added PSMA PET into this um, algorithm just because at the time that we came up with this the first time, it wasn't even really available. So um, we actually did a CAT scan and bone scan on this patient, uh, as we talked about. Uh, he had a CT urogram which showed no METs, bone scans showed no METs, and so he underwent treatment. So treatment for this patient could have been radiation or surgery. We decided on surgery. He had a robotic prostatectomy. Uh, he was upstaged to a, a grade group, uh, although still great, uh, actually a grade group five disease now, or four plus five disease, and the pathology was locally advanced with T3A in zero, R0, so negative surgical margins. Um, I guess I should ask at this point, what would, what would we do with this patient at this point? So you have locally advanced disease, grade group five, youngish patient, underwent a robotic prostatectomy back in, this was 2010. How would we treat this patient now? So um, there's a couple different thoughts that come into mind. So certainly there's a role for the post-op genomic testing. Um, the role of adjuvant radiotherapy has really been controversial for many years. Um, at Jefferson, we used to be very aggressive with post-op radiation for any adverse pathologic feature. Um, we've sort of supplanted that with genomics. And so there is a genomics assay available in the post-op setting, Decipher. If they're high risk Decipher, then we would counsel them in a shared decision-making model about being aggressive with post-op adjuvant radiotherapy versus um, surveillance. Right, and so this patient underwent the prior, or the latter, which is surveillance, um, undetectable PSA. However, about a year after, or a couple years after his radical prostatectomy, now we see a detectable PSA 0 0.2, 0 0.1, and 0.2. So this was the, que the next question that I had asked. This was however many years ago. What are you going to do now? Um, what would we do now with this patient? So this is kind of timely because... Um I heard through the grapevine that uh, Embark is going to be reported out this meeting. So Embark was a clinical trial of uh, enzalutamide for biochemically recurrent uh, patients after definitive local therapy. Uh, the rumor is it's a positive trial. Mm -hmm. um, and that was randomizing, I don't remember the randomization, is it ADT alone plus ADT, it was ADT versus Enzo? Right. right. Um, for this man, that PSA is so low, uh, next-generation imaging probably won't show very much, but you'd think about imaging him to try to cl you know, clarify whether he has metastatic disease or not. There's also a randomized trial now looking at PET-directed therapy 
um, which is available at, at Jefferson. So patients, this is through the ECOG uh, cooperative group, where patients with biochemically recurrent disease, um, they would get an upfront PET, and then depending on what the PET showed, they would intensify or de-intensify the salvage therapy. So if it didn't show metastatic disease, then potentially just salvage radiation. If it showed low-volume metastatic disease, uh, you'd get radiation, uh, salvage radiation with radiation of the involved metastatic sites with or without, um, uh, I think, apalutamide. So that's another consideration. Um, but this, this patient, you kind of could you know, have a shared decision-making on how aggressive you want to be. And one, one of the um, conversations that's come up, which never really came up before, because a lot of the times we were just tossing these patients to radiation oncology and they would, they would give a salvage radiation to the prostate bed is, could you wait until their PSA gets to a level? Because Ed mentioned this earlier, it's probably still too low at this point that anything's going to show up on a PSMA PET scan. Usually 0 0.4, 0 0.5 is what we use as a cutoff to where we think we actually may see something in these patients. Um, so would you just wait until the PSA gets to that point, do a PS PSMA PET scan, and see what it shows? I mean, if it shows local recurrence in the prostate bed, but again, remember this patient had negative margins, and t although T3 disease, so it's actually very possible that this patient is going to recur distant. So it may be worth waiting in these patients or this particular patient to until his PSA gets a little bit higher. And that can be a very uncomfortable conversation, although it would be nice if he showed up with like a, a, a solitary node or even a solitary bone met to actually target that uh, versus administering uh, radiation to the prostate bed, which has its own side effects. I mean, for those of us who have seen hematuria in these patients, even though time has gone on, that's, that complication certainly hasn't gone away and it can be very difficult to treat and it's hard to justify doing that in a patient which you don't think is going to recur locally anyway. I think it's also important to mention that our um, old paradigm of bicalutamide probably should be retired. And oh, there it comes. <laughs> so that's, that's what we did with this patient back in 2000. I mean, this is only 10 years ago. Uh, we started bicalutamide, we started Lupron, we gave radiation, and his PSA did respond, although it may have been due to the, uh, to the Lupron, um, but once the Lupron was stopped, then we saw his PSA really start to skyrocket up. And one thing I will say, in these patients, um, I am uh, looking at the PSA doubling time. If it's a really, really slow doubling time, again, that's more consistent with the local recurrence and it's somebody who I may recommend for, well, although this particular patient got radiation, but when you see it start to skyrocket like this, you really start to think of, uh, of distant disease. I said here, repeat, staging studies at the time. Um, what staging studies would we get on this patient at this time? Yeah, so he's gone from a PSA of 0.2 to 1. Um, so, you know, PSA of 1, um, PSMA PET should be fairly accurate. Uh, again, unfortunately, this sometimes is uh, predicated on the insurance coverage. If it's not covered, then we'd get standard CT and bone scan. Okay. So, um, kind of went out of sequence here, but uh, this patient 
did respond to uh, his radiation. Uh, it w again, it was undetectable, however, we started, started to see the PSA go up at that point. And then we uh, come to the staging options, which is uh, what we just mentioned. Really, uh, A through E is what we had available to us in 2017. We had the PSMA PET uh, afterward, and really PSMA PET, we think, is what we actually may uh, give to this or use, use on this patient at this point. So now the patient uh, has been placed on uh, apalutamide and Lupron, um, did have an axiom in PET scan that was negative. This was actually after radiation. Uh, and now we're seeing the PSA start to go up in a patient who was on androgen deprivation and a, uh, an AR-directed therapy. So PSA has gone from 0.3 to 0.6 to 4 to 12 in a just over one, actually over six month period. So really, really rapid uh, doubling time. And so we have a patient with uh, castate resistant prostate cancer. So what are we going to do with this patient who now we know has a castrate testosterone, although, and a, and a PSA that's going up. What is our next move uh, for this patient? So this is kind of interesting because, um, and this gets back to you know clinical trial design and uh, drug development. So apalutamide was sort of a Me Too drug coming into the market after enzalutamide, and they're trying to figure out how to get into the market. So they were smart and looked at the non-metastatic castrate-resistant space, which at that point there was no approved um, therapy other than ADT. And they showed benefits. So this this uh, sequence is exactly um, that sequence. So now he's got a PSA doubling time uh, less than six months. So he's at the highest risk of eventual death from prostate cancer. Um, have we staged him again? Good question. So how would we stage this patient at this point? I mean, so so not to be repetitive, but we love our PSMA. <laughs> but at the time, all we had was a bone scan and a CAT scan. Also, the bone scan did show osseous metastases in L2 and the right acetabulum. So now we have a patient with metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. So looking at the current guidelines, now these were the guidelines. Um, looking at the current guidelines, how do you think we treat this patient? So he's already been pre-treated with... Um, uh, with Second-generation uh, right. AR... Yeah, so as Anne says, I mean, um, this is really technically second-line therapy with a very fast PSA doubling time. Um, so docetaxel may be a very good option for him. Um, uh, we certainly would want to consider a bone-strengthening agent uh, since he has bone mets, um, denosumab. Uh, Sapula cell T um, is on the list. Uh, it's probably underutilized. Um, his PSA doubling time's a little quick, so he's the kind of guy that we might not want to slow everything down just to see if there's any response to that. Um, and then radium-223, I think, would be also approved here as well. So we have a lot of different options for him. So uh, at the time, uh, we started abiraterone with prednisone. Um, we did give denosumab, like you mentioned. Um, his PSA did respond initially. But again, over a six-month period, went from 0.6 up to 11. So again, very high risk that this patient uh, is going to die from prostate cancer. We've now tried him on a couple uh, different um, 
uh, regimens, uh, all AR targeted. Um, so we're going to. This also brings up the um, observation, you know, sequencing these treatments is so difficult figuring out where they should go. But it does seem to be uh, fairly consistent that if they've had an AR targeted therapy, uh, followed by an androgen biosynthesis inhibitor, they don't necessarily respond very well, and vice versa. Um, so Enza, Abby, Abby, Enza. I mean, it's an option, and some will respond, but you might want to think of another mechanistic uh, target. So we where we staged this patient. Again, we can recreate the wheel and talk about PET scan, but we didn't have that available at the time. We got a bone scan, and now we have a patient with diffuse uh, osseous metastatic disease. So CAT scan, I think, was still negative, so we did not see visceral metastases, did not see adenopathy, but again, saw mostly or so almost primarily osseous or bone, bone disease. So he was symptomatic. He received palliative radiotherapy, and this is a patient who we administered radium-2232, completed six cycles in October of 18, and his PSA responded a little bit, although started to creep back up again. So now we have a patient who's failed a couple AR-directed therapies, uh, failed Lupron alone, um, now failed radium-223, and really our treatment options, I think, uh, at this point are becoming more and more limited. Uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and take this one. I think that docetaxel was what we were going to administer this patient, uh, which we did. Um, and I believe he is still alive. So I'd love to um, go over through the rest of the cases, but we're going to run out of time. I'll, we'll take, I'll take questions at the, um, uh, here at the lectern just because, um, just in the interest of time, if you guys do have any questions. Again, I thank my speakers, my panel. Thank you to all of you for showing up. I hope you enjoyed it today. And hopefully, again, we can come next year and show all the updates that the last year has brought us with regard to systemic therapy for uh, these GU malignancies. 